Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 17. We continue listening to our Lord Jesus pray to his Father, and he's doing this in the presence of his eleven, his faithful eleven. And this is immediately after all that heavy, overwhelming teaching that he's laid on them in the upper room. And I'm going to run through it quickly. In chapter 13, he tells them how they're cleansed already from their sins by faith in him. He shocks them. He says, one of you will betray me to death. And then he looks at Peter after Peter makes a big statement. And he looks at Peter, Peter of all men, and says, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows today. And then in chapter 14, he tells them about how he's going back to heaven to his father's house and he's preparing for them tomorrow. He's preparing for them a place in his father's house. And then he's going to come back and take them with him. And in 14.6, he reminds them that he alone is the way to eternal life. He alone is the way to the father's house, to heaven. In verse 9, he says this astounding thing, that to see him is to see the Father. Now, I'm not going to run through all that again. He's not saying he is the Father, but to see him is to see the perfect revelation, as far as humanity, humanity can do it, of God the Father. It's amazing. And then in verses 13 and 14, he gives the startling prayer promise. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Hmm, that's a twist. And then he begins explaining all the wonderful promises of the coming and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the doctrine of the Trinity. This mysterious relationship between the Father... And the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit there in the, in the 20s, in chapter 14 in the 20s there. And it's, it's amazing to them. This is new territory. This is heavy. This is heavy doctrine he's laying on them. Mm. And then that the promise that all of this that he is laying out before them. That has their heads spinning. This is all new. What? What? He promises that when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit will explain all that to them. You can't get it now. You don't get it now. But when he comes. He will explain everything to you. And by the way. He will remind you of everything I've taught you. Incredible. Like we say, we can't remember what we had for lunch. Much less everything the Lord Jesus taught them. And then in chapter 15, he gives us the picture of the vine and the branches, the relationship between us and him, and that we bear fruit for him by abiding in him, by staying plugged into him, by trusting him, by walking with him. And then in 15.7, he gives another prayer promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Incredible. It shall be done for you. 
And then in 15, 16, we have sovereign grace sticking out again. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I've ordained you, I've placed you, that you might bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. And then he gives them, after all that wonderful information, warnings that the world will hate them, just like the world hates him. And then in chapter 16, he returns to more news about the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, he tells them that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. And I hope I made it plain when we were looking at that. What that means is Jesus is going to continue to teach them through the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, I'm going away, but I will continue to teach you after the Holy Spirit comes. Hmm. And then in verses 23 and 24, the third great prayer promise that he gives them in just, what, 15 to 18 minutes. All of this comes on them in 15 to 18 minutes in the upper room. He says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. And then he ends on a sad note. They're, they will all abandon him that night and he says you will leave me alone and I'm sure they're all sitting there shocked and recoiling and he says but I won't be alone for the father is with me and then he says after saying you will abandon me <laughs> these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace what? You just told us that we're going to abandon you. And now you're saying you told us these things so that in you we may have peace. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Everything that I've told you that is going to happen to me. All your failure of loyalty that I told you that you're going to perpetrate against me. This is all part of our decree. This has been decreed from before the foundation of the world. You don't understand it now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you will understand. This is all necessary if you're going to be saved. If you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're going to become one with me and the Father. If we're going to dwell with you. If you're going to come into the Father's house. You have to abandon me. You have to leave me alone so that they will take me and flog me and mock me and condemn me and crucify me that I might save you. Take courage. What you see tomorrow is not the end. It's just the beginning. Mm. Then he begins to pray for himself for his faithful eleven and for us. So let's read verses 6 through 12 yet again. And I think that tonight we might actually finish verses 6 through 12. Follow along if you would. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. 
and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Last week, as we read through these verses, we saw what the father gave to his incarnate son. He gave his incarnate son, Jesus of Nazareth, he gave him us. And he also gave him that stewardship. You remember, he gave him the stewardship of revealing the name of the Father. Of revealing in his body, in his words, in his attitude, in his miracles, just exactly what sort of Father God the Father is. He, and that's why we saw in 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He perfectly reveals the Father to anybody that's looking. So when somebody foolishly says, if God would just come down and show himself to me, then I would believe. He did. He did. <laughs> and then he gave him the stewardship of the word. I've given them your word. And they believed it. They received it. And then he gave him the stewardship of our salvation. Unless the son actually goes to the cross... Unless he stays on the cross. Unless he takes all of the wrath of the Trinity on himself. And absorbs it. And it drains the cup dry. Then all the Father's intentions are for nothing. But we saw last week that can't be for nothing. So this evening we're going to focus on asking for us because that's what he's doing here. Now first I want to pick up some pieces because as we're going through here, this isn't like chapter 7 or chapter 9 or chapter 10 where you have a nice narrative. And so you, you, you can break it up into pieces and it all fits together and it's easy to do an exposition. No, it's almost as if the Lord Jesus is sitting there and one thought after another is coming into his head. And he's saying, I need to tell them this. I, I, oh, and I need to tell them this and I need to tell them this. It's, it's almost, and I hadn't thought about this, it's almost like what happens when daddy comes back from the war. And his daughter, who hasn't seen him for 13 months, comes running out. I remember that picture of POWs coming off of an airplane in 1973. And this family is just running across the tarmac to embrace dad. And the daughter, the teenage daughter, I mean, she, her feet aren't even touching the ground. She is in the air. She is lunging to grab her dad. And you can imagine what's bubbling out of her mouth. You know, when they get home, she wants to tell him everything. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing here, but it's 
Somewhere sort of like that. There's so many things to tell us. And so little time because right after this they're going to leave the upper room and go to Gethsemane. And we know what happens there. So we have to pick up some pieces that I've missed in verse 6. Notice in verse 6. He says, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And we've hit this word kept before. The word kept there means to guard. To guard as a treasure. Tereo. Uh, the, uh, there's another word for guarding like a soldier on the wall. But this is more like a bank guard. Guarding the treasure. And he says, I gave them your word. They have kept your word. They, it's precious to them. Now, it doesn't mean that they perfectly obeyed your word any more than it means that we have fully obeyed what we've heard. But he's talking about the Father's word, your word. Now, how did this 11 hear the Father speak? The only time that we know they actually heard any words was on the Mount of Transfiguration and one other time when he said, uh, Jesus said, glorify your name. And he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. How did they hear the Father speak? And we know how. It's through the mouth of Jesus. It's through his words. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about the words which you gave me. So what I've taught them is what you gave me. They heard the Father's words out of Jesus' mouth. In his own words. And we're told there, they received it. They truly understood that I came forth from you. From alongside of you. Para. That's a, a lot of implication right there in just that one statement. That I came not as an angel sent by you, that totally different from you, but from all eternity I was alongside you. Mm. And he says, they believe that you sent me. They believe that I am your son. I really am your son. I'm their Messiah. I'm their promised king. They believe that I can forgive sins. I mean, they heard me say it. Luke chapter 5, paralytic, let down through the ceiling. Jesus says, looks at him, smiles, says, son, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious Baptists sitting around the room there say, this, how can this man blaspheme? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And we say, you're right. Yes. You're right. Yes. And Jesus looks at him and says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know, and this includes the 11 who happen to be sitting there. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. And he picks up his bed, puts it under his arm and walks out. You can just imagine the crowd just parting as he comes walking out of there. They believe he can forgive sins. He can forgive theirs. They believe that he can give eternal life. Uh, he told them. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. 
And they believe he can give them eternal life. They treasure these promises. Sins forgiven. I mean, somebody like Peter, foul-mouthed Peter. Somebody like Levi, a thieving, traitorous tax collector, squeezing, extorting money out of people. Somebody like Simon the Zealot, maybe has a couple of notches in his dagger. Murdered, maybe. He can forgive their sins. They believe it. They receive it. He can give me eternal life, which I had no hope of eternal life unless He gives it to me. They treasure these words. They guard these words. You see, these aren't just Bible stories coming out of Jesus' mouth. These aren't just parables that Jesus is saying to them. No, these are God's own words. These are God's own words about them, to them. This is God speaking personally through the mouth of Jesus to them, to sinners, to unstable sinners, to sinners who wanted to incinerate Samaritans because they wouldn't receive Jesus into their city. Yahweh has made them his sheep. Has made them his good soil where the word is going to sprout up. He's made them his harvest. He sent his own son to them. He has forgiven their sins. He's given them eternal life. This is up close and personal because he's called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so they treasure this good news. Just like we do. This isn't light stuff for us. This is our life. Now we finally get to asking for us. In verse 9, notice what Jesus says. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me for they are yours. I ask. Two words that are used mostly for ask in the New Testament. One word is this word, I mean not this word, it's another word. Get ahead of myself here. Back up. It's not this word, but there's a word for ask that means to ask like a plea. This is an inferior asking for a favor from a superior. This would be like a subject asking for a favor from their king. This is the word that's used in John 14, 13. Until now you have asked for nothing. I mean, John 16, uh, 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. An inferior asking from a superior. You're asking God. All right. But the word he uses here is not that word. That word for ask is used most of the time. It's always used concerning us as praying to God. Now, the word that's used here is a different word. It's a confident request among equals. Or at least among close familiar friends. It's a word that describes an adult 
son, a beloved adult son, making a request of his father. In other words, Jesus is saying, look at verse 9, I ask on their behalf, Father, I confidently ask on their behalf. If you have two good friends, say it's just you and me, Matt, and I ask, may, may I borrow your power drill tomorrow? And you're not going to be using it? What's going to be the response? Of course. I'm confident you're going to say that. Or, if I ask you, I have five pounds of fresh steak left over. Would you like it? I'm confident what the answer is going to be. You know? Of course. That's, that's this word for ask right here. This is what Jesus is saying. He is confidently asking his father. And I'm asking on their behalf. On their behalf. And he makes sure that we understand who the there are. They're the ones whom you have given me. Hmm. Those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to be the eleven. And other believers at this time. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. I'm asking for them. Uh, Zacchaeus. I'm asking for him. Remember the man born blind in the temple? And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe him? He said, you've heard him and you're looking at him. And he worshipped him. What about the woman, the immoral woman? We usually call her the immoral woman in Luke chapter 7. Comes to Simon the Pharisee's house. She has no trouble getting in because nobody's going to touch her. Nobody tries to stop her. She just, they just, again, part when she shows up. And she comes in, and you, you know the story. She goes straight to his feet. And she's weeping on his feet. And she's kissing his feet through her tears. And then she starts drying his feet with the hair of her head. And then she starts pouring perfume on his feet. Mm. And he said... I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. I pray for her. Now, what is it that Jesus is asking from his Father? Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The Lord Jesus is asking the Father to guard, like a treasure, his believers. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I guarded them, he says in verse 15, from the evil one. And all of his devices that he's going to use or attempt to use to try to pry these away from me. They get it wrong. Remember Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be crucified. And Simon Peter jumps up and says, this will never happen to you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. They get it wrong, but I would correct them, 
and I would restore them. Or they stumble into sin. Luke chapter 22. Jesus asked them on the road, what is it you were disputing about back there? <laughs> and everybody's face blushes. You know, nobody can look him in the face now. Because they've been arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Sinful, self-promoting ambition. Jesus has just told them he's going to be crucified. And all they can think about is, well, who's going to be the prime minister in the kingdom? Who's going to have the uppermost seats? You remember uh, James and John going to Mama? Mama, will you ask Jesus for us if we could sit on his right and his left? The most powerful positions. Hmm. They fall into sin. I'll always bring them back. I always corrected them. I always restored them. They have all been preserved in the faith except the son of perdition. The one who was so full, full of wickedness and deceit and lying and thieving. The one whom I chose to be one of my disciples knowing he's the one that must betray me. Chose him to betray me chose him knowing that in him that there was nothing but malice toward God he's the only one that's been lost it says according to the scriptures and this is just for notes Psalm 41 9 would be a scripture referring to this where David talks about his dear beloved friend that he had such sweet fellowship with lifted up his heel against me yeah, and then Psalm 109 verses 1 through 5 and then other verses as well talk about the betrayal of the wicked. So Jesus says in verse 13, Father, I've kept them, but now I'm coming to you. I treasured them. I protected them. But now I'm coming to you. So I'm not going to be with them anymore. They're going to be left alone. They'll be like sheep without a shepherd. So what Jesus is asking his father, confidently asking his father, is father now will you guard them? Hmm. Guard them from the evil one. And he's confident that the father will because he says in verse 9, for they are yours. <laughs> Remember we talked about that before? They're your flock. They're your treasure, Father. They're your children by faith in me, Father. They're yours and they're doubly yours because they're going to be bought with my blood tomorrow. So please guard them. Please protect them from the evil one. From what they're going to see and think tomorrow. And over the next few days. Jesus asked that the Father guard them so that they may become one even as we are one. And we're going to deal with that later when we get to verse 21. We're not dealing with that tonight. But Jesus confidently asked his Father to guard his disciples. And his Father does. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. I was so afraid today that... Another, another one of my sermons is going to be preempted by what the pastors preached this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. This is how the Father guards us. Look at verse 4. 
You have not yet resisted to the point that has resisted sin to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you. My son, I'm going to have to do this in New King James because that's the way I memorized it. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. This is how our Father keeps us. This is how he works through his Holy Spirit to keep us. When we foolishly sin, when we foolishly are are tempted to go into heresy because for some reason what the Jehovah's Witness came to your house and said seems to make sense or for some brand new child of God they're listening to one of Rod Parsley or some other antichrist on television with this false so-called gospel of prosperity and health. And it begins to sound good to them and you begin to be drawn toward that. Mm. When you foolishly give in to your flesh's demands. You know, your flesh screams to be satisfied. Your, Your flesh will never give you a moment's peace. Whatever it is that your flesh wants, it shrieks like a two-year-old in a shopping cart at the checkout counter to be given it and it will give you no peace that's why we have to kill it don't kill the two-year-olds but we have to kill the flesh remember David he has no intention whatsoever of committing adultery he goes up on the roof at night when he's at home and he has no business being there and he looks out and there's Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house And I'm not going to comment on that. But that evening he commits adultery. He sends for her, takes her, has her brought to him. And as the king commands her to have relations with him. He gave in to the sudden shrieking insistence of his flesh. Or we give in to any of the lies and any of the... the, the vices of the evil one. Remember Peter and Antioch? That the church is growing. Gentiles are being converted. They're being educated. Everything's working well. Peter comes up. He's amazed at what he sees. He's having fellowship with the Gentiles. He sits down at the same table with them. He's eating the same food with them. He's enjoying it. He's got his arm around his brothers. They're praying together. They're ministering together. And then some Jewish Christians, Judaizers probably, or at least Neo-Judaizers, come up from Jerusalem. And James withdraws him. I mean, Peter withdraws himself. He won't have anything. He doesn't want him to think, oh no, I'm not, I'm not having anything to do with Gentiles. This is the same guy that God used to take the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman occupier, and his family. And what does Paul do? Stands him to his face. You hypocrite. How dare you pervert the gospel? How dare you deny grace? How dare you? And what did the Holy Spirit do? Convicted Peter. What did the Holy Spirit do? Convicted David. About eight and a half months. What does the Holy Spirit do to some new Christian who is being seduced by the the Mormon liar or the Jehovah's Witness liar or the TV preacher liar with their false doctrines? 
The Holy Spirit convicts them. This is not the gospel. Or when a brother or sister in Christ finds out they're being drawn into that. The brother or sister sits down with them and shows them the way more accurately. And they're convicted. Oh, no, I can't go there. I can't go there. I'm not going back to that. Mm. The Father convicts us by his Holy Spirit. And if we don't listen to that conviction, then he chastens us. And if we won't listen, as I've said so often in the past, if he doesn't listen to the snap of the finger and the pointed finger that says, Son, then the belt comes off. And if we won't listen to the belt, then the two-by-four comes out. And he will guard his son's purchased possession, even if he has to break every bone in your body in order to do it. He will inflict as much mental, spiritual, and physical anguish on us as is necessary to bring us to repentance. Because he chastens every son and he scourges those whom he loves out of love he will save our he will preserve our souls for his son and he always succeeds he always succeeds our god began our salvation And he will complete our salvation. We will not be allowed to wander away. You remember what the Lord Jesus said about the shepherd? He has 99 that are doing fine. And one wanders off. And the shepherd goes after him, grabs him, throws him on his shoulders, and brings him back. That's the way our God deals with us. That's good news. He's not going to let us go away. But all this good news is for Jesus' disciples only. For his flock only. Look at verse 9 again. Whoops, I'm in Hebrews. That won't work. Verse 9. I ask on behalf, on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Hmm. The world. That present evil system of things. And those who are in it. The world loves the lies of the evil one. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The world doesn't keep the father's word. It doesn't treasure the father's word. The world despises God's word. And mocks God himself. The world will not have this man rule over us, but they're willing slaves of sin. That's the world. The world is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-life, anti-eternal life. And it's condemned already. That's what John 3.36 said. Jesus said that. The wrath of God abides on them. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. Well, then Jesus must be one of those non-evangelistic Calvinists. (laughs) He just doesn't have a heart for the lost. It's just his little 11. Thus four, no more, close the door. 
Is that what's going on here? Of course not. See, the good news is that even though he's not praying for the world, he's not saying, bring the world into the kingdom, Father, as it is, just as I am. You have to accept me like I am. Don't judge me. Give me eternal life. Give me all the goodies. Give me heaven. Give me a, a Muslim heaven with my 72 virgins and all the wine I can drink. Everything that God has forbidden on earth, I'm going to get in heaven. What kind of weird, wacky God is that? No, the good news is this. Some who are sold out to the world today have been given to the Lord Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world and they don't know it. Before the foundation of the world, they were chosen by the Father for the Son even though they now despise the Son and despise the Father. But the promise still stands. All that the Father has given me will come to me. They will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will trust the Lord Jesus Christ. They will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. They will rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear the gospel, the true gospel. The gospel of grace. And when they hear the gospel of grace, the Holy Spirit is going to give them a new heart. He's going to take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to give them a new spirit, a receptive spirit. And they are going to believe. And they will receive Jesus Christ as Lord. And they will be happy about it. That's our testimony. <laughs> we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were given to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father and we didn't even know it. And if you told us that we had been, we would have denied it and said we don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet, in God's timing, we heard the gospel from a friend, from a teacher, from a preacher, over the radio, on television, off of a CD, almost said tape, off of a CD. And we believed it. Because he made us believe it. He gave us a new mind. He raised us from the dead. And we received the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Ephesians 1.4 is us. No, excuse me, Ephesians 2.4 is us. Even though we were children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Even while we were dead in trespasses. Not after we believed in Jesus. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Raised us up out of the dead. For by grace you have been saved. With Christ. Made us alive with Christ. And raised us from the dead. That's what happened to us. That's what's going to happen to them. Those that the father has given to his son. Will hear the gospel. 
They will believe the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, yeah, but they don't believe it yet because you're fulfilling your responsibility. You're talking to Curtis at work. You're talking to the the folks at work. You're talking to your neighbors about the Lord Jesus Christ as he gives you opportunity. You say, well, they, they haven't believed yet. Well, no, because we don't set God's schedule. God sets his schedule. How many times did you hear the gospel before you believed it? You see, you have to have a base of understanding of the facts before you can receive Jesus as Lord. We're not just believing in fairy tales. We're not just believing in belief. We're believing in substantive facts about God and about the Lord Jesus Christ and about us. Hmm. And when those that the Father gave his Son hear the gospel and by grace are converted and they come to the Lord Jesus Christ, then they will be kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Our Lord Jesus Christ asked his Father to keep us safe for himself. He has and he will. Would you stand with me please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed.